Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague and co-host, Michael Bauman. Hi, Michael. Hello. So later in this episode, we are going to be talking to Chris the Dragon Davinsky, the Astros Swiss Army Knife reliever. He can do anything so far this season. As we speak, he has had two relief appearances of four innings and one of one inning. He can come in any time. He finished fourth in the Rookie of the Year voting last year after essentially not being a prospect. He's being used in a singular way, so we're going to talk to him about that and his evolution as a pitcher. Before that, we're going to talk to Rick Ankiel about his new book, The Phenomenon, and that's what we're just going to talk about for a minute here because this is the second ball player we've spoken to in the last couple of weeks after reading his new memoir. We talked to Chipper Jones about his book, Ball Player, recently, and there are a lot of parallels between these players and these books. Of course, they were teammates very briefly, and Chipper comes up in Ankiel's book because Ankiel wanted to be a brave, and like Chipper, he was a preternaturally talented young player, and the similarities I suppose sort of end there. Chipper was just a great and consistent Hall of Fame level player for just about all of his career, whereas Ankiel, of course, went through all sorts of difficulties with the yips and then became a position player. And their upbringings were different in that Chipper had a, a very supportive family and Ankiel had a lot of difficulties in his home life with an abusive father who was sort of the opposite of Chipper's in a lot of ways. Did any other similar similarities or differences crop up for you as you were reading? They're both from Florida. Yes, that too. Uh, <laughs> and Keel talks about playing Chipper's high school at some point when he was in. Yeah, that's right. Well, this got me thinking about what we like about ballplayer memoirs or baseball memoirs, what we want to see in them, what we don't like as much. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I've been thinking about this. Usually my favorite sports books tend not to be memoirs. They tend to be yeah. reported or, you know, researched or, you know, historical or something of that nature, just because I like to have somebody else do some of the evaluating for me. Right. The one exception that I really liked, and this isn't baseball, but the my favorite sports memoir is Tyler Hamilton, The Cyclist. Uh-huh. Um I think there are two ways that I can really get into a memoir. And one is just to be, if the person is just really, really interesting. I think Rick Ankiel is, you know, there's a little, (laughs) I mean, it's not literally a unique story, but it's pretty close to it. And I think, you Mm -hmm. know, Tyler Hamilton went through, you know, he was suspended for doping twice. He came up like he was the, the anti Lance Armstrong when Lance Armstrong was a godlike figure and he was a key figure in, in that downfall. So you get to hear the Lance Armstrong story from Tyler Hamilton's perspective, which was interesting. But also he had his own problems in his marriage. He was Mm -hmm. depressed and and all sorts of uh, other stuff like that. And the other thing is if it tells you a story that you've already heard in a way that you haven't heard it before. So, you know, Mm -hmm. again, that's more of the Hamilton stuff. And I think there's a little bit of that to to Chipper, too, because, you you know, you know about his extreme lack of adversity on the field, but also his problems with his first marriage, I guess, would be the Mm -hmm. only thing that everybody really knew about Chipper Jones off the field. And you get to get a look into a childhood that we hadn't really seen discussed all that much. So, you know, I I thought the first part of both of those books was the most interesting because that was a different spin on the story. Yeah. And I don't know if it's enough anymore just to have the tell-all behind the scenes in the clubhouse, on the bus, in the dugout kind of look. Like the early books in that genre, like Jim Brosnan's The Long Season or Ball Four, of course, they were amazing because they were telling truths about baseball that no one ever 
never really reported or acknowledged and you were getting this unvarnished look at the game. And that's still enjoyable, but there have been enough of those now that that alone is maybe not enough. So I wonder if more of that stuff comes out now just because there are more media, you know, more media outlets and there's a little bit more of a white line. Like you read Summer of 49 and the reporters all go out drinking with the Yankees and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And, you know, that doesn't really happen as much anymore. Yeah. So I like someone who has interesting reflections on the game or is sort of a, a philosopher, kind of like Dirk Hayhurst in his books or, or yes, someone who just has a, a singular story like Ankiel and can write about things that even most other pro ball players can't. So his book is compelling for that reason, and we can bring him on now. Wild pitch. And then Chipper Jones up. Wild pitch. Galarraga up with runners at second and third. And a save of a would-be wild pitch. And then on a walk to Galarraga, wild pitch. And now another wild pitch. We'll go into the Wildness Hall of Fame, I think. So we are now joined by former Major Leaguer Rick Ankiel, whose new book with Tim Brown, The Phenomenon, comes out on Tuesday. Hey, Rick. How you guys doing? Doing okay. So Michael and I were just talking. We were telling you that it's hard to know exactly what to ask you because your book is about how you don't have all the answers, really, and how you have asked yourself all these questions so many times that people ask you, and it's really hard to explain. And I'm curious about this. I just went to your page on Fangraphs to look at your 2000 season and remind myself how it went. And all it says is that you hit a couple home runs and you batted 250. This whole page is about your career as a hitter, as an outfielder. You can't even find evidence that you were ever a pitcher on this page. And if you go to your baseball reference page, even you have to scroll down past the batting and the player value batting and the postseason batting to get to the pitching. And I'm curious if there are people who aren't familiar with your story and just saw your name and looked you up and thought, oh, he was a pretty good outfielder, played for the Cardinals for a while and some other teams. What would you think about that? Would you be happy that they didn't know the beginning of the story and the struggles that you had? Or would you want them to know the whole story, even though at times it gets pretty dark? No, I'd want you to know the whole story because that's, that's what makes the story for me. You know, I mean, when you go back and see how good I was as a young pitcher um, and then overcoming, you know, going through the yips and overcoming that and, and uh, you know, moving on to the outfielder. No, I, I would want you to know. So one thing that I actually did find myself wanting to to know more about is that as you got back to the the big leagues as a reliever, what was that like on the mound? You know, you were able to to deal with your with your control problems and sort of get it under control. But I never got the sense that and you said this like you never conquered it. It never got fun again. Well, it has been 47 months since we have seen Rick and Keel pitch in a major league game. And this is our call to the bullpen. Exciting for Rick, exciting for the Cardinals to see him back on the mound. And the first pitch, yes, sir, it's a strike. And it all works out perfect because he has his comfort zone with Mike Matheny back there behind the plate. But just watch him warm up. Everything was fine. Was it just white-knuckling every single pitch uh, by the time you got back to the big leagues in 2004? Yeah, you know, what it took for me to, to be successful and throw strikes was just all-day mental training. And, you know, I'm really a carefree, have fun, joke with everybody kind of guy. And, you know, I wasn't able to do that. From the time I woke up to the time I went to bed, I just it was almost like a horse that has blinders on. I, I had to be this 
robot of a person always on, always doing these exercises to get myself to the game. And I wasn't that, you know, I guess I'll say it, I wasn't that the same pitcher I was before I went through the, before I went to the yes, you know, when I went out there and just, you know, I knew I could throw the ball by you and in just that invincible type pitcher, you know, all that had changed and what it took for me to get it right, what it took for me to throw strikes and all that. I, I tried to look into the future and, and say, what's this going to be like in five or eight years or whatever was going to come of it. Um, and, and I just, you know, you got to look at it. And, and the way I looked at it was like, you know what, this isn't, this isn't life. And this, this isn't what, what life should be, you know, it shouldn't be this hard and, and this, you know, especially in that thing. And that's how it came about where, you know, I was like, all right, it's time for a change and time for me to do something else. And then that's when the outfield thing came up. And did you feel, I guess, fortunate that you were a good enough athlete to play center field that you hit well enough to be able to hack it? I mean, just in terms, just leaving aside why you transitioned from pitcher to position player, you were an extremely successful conversion and in the order no hits and kill out to deep right field has a chance to leave the ballpark it's gone a three-run shot for rick and kill back in the major leagues remarkable five to nothing st louis fortunate do you feel that you had that other club in your bag so to speak that you were able to get back to the big leagues and have that experience uh as an outfielder well i'm very proud of it you know it took a lot of hard work just getting there early staying late from taking fly balls to ground balls to all the hitting i could do because i really felt like i was playing catch up you know at 25 at the time when i made the switch and you know, that seems ancient to, to go back down to A-ball. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm also thankful of the opportunity that the Cardinals gave me. You know, I don't, you know, who knows if another organization would have given me that chance. But I think that, you know, they saw something there and knew that there was an opportunity. You know, part of it, too, is that when I did make that switch, it seemed like every, nobody in the world was giving me a chance. I mean, there was a handful of people who I felt like believed in me. But other than that, you know, it seemed like everybody else was like, yeah, right. Good luck with that kid. You're going to stop pitching and go be a header. Let me see you do that. And part of that fueled me too. It's just that, you know, there's something about being able to accomplish something that nobody else thinks you can do that challenge that comes with that. And, you know, once I stopped pitching, even, I mean, just the next day. So, I, I mean, I, I retired from pitching and I showed up the next day as an outfielder. And even that next, I mean, that first day when I got there, I felt like this giant weight had been taken off my shoulders. Like, all right, good. I don't have to grind all day and work on how to throw strikes and be successful at doing that. And so it really became fun to be at the field again and be with the guys. And I started, you know, I was able to be me again and joke around and have fun. And um, that in itself, just the game becoming fun again, it just made it all worth it. Is there any hitter equivalent of the yips? I mean, obviously, defensive players have had it too, but is there anything comparable in the batter's box that you've ever heard of? And if not, do you have any theories about why that is? Well, I have a, yeah, I do have a theory on it. I think hitters do go through it, but the difference is, is that hitting is a reaction, right? So you're reacting mm-hmm. to what the pitcher does and to what the ball does. So whereas pitching is, it's an action and you're out there by yourself. Right. So there's nowhere to hide. I mean, but how many times do we watch a guy go eight, 0 for 18 and you can mm-hmm. watch him and watch his body language and he looks absolutely lost. Like he can't even foul a ball off, but we don't mm-hmm. talk about it in that sense. They go, Oh, well, he's in a slump. He'll find his way out of there. No big deal. But to me, because of the fact that you're in the lineup and you can kind of hide in the lineup, so to speak, I mean, the team can still win the game. It's not so focused on whatever. I mean, it's a, you know, you will say, 
you know, to me, there's just similarities, if that makes sense. But it seems like mm-hmm. most hitters find their way out of it. It might take them a while, or maybe they have a bad year, but they get it back. But uh, to me, I mean, when you look at the body language of some guys when they're going through slumps, I think you can definitely draw comparisons. Yeah, and when you make that transition in the book, the reader can really feel the relief. You know, things get so much more lighthearted. You can you almost feel like a weight has been lifted from you as you read the story, even just because you were enjoying yourself so much more as a hitter. But you talk about the yips, as you call it, the thing or the monster, as this living entity that would pursue you and outsmart you and whatever you would try to do to cope with it, it would adjust. And did you ever worry that it would find you somehow as as a hitter and that it would follow you into the batter's box somehow? Or was that just never really in your mind? No, it was never in my mind. I mean, you know, the one thing that I've always said about it is, you know, even in 04, when I was able to be successful, it never goes away completely. It's always there. So even as an outfielder, when I played catch, because I didn't like the short distance, right? The mound distance from the mound to home plate is 60 feet, six inches. So even playing catch in the outfield some days, those short distances, you still, I still didn't like. I have to concentrate and think about it. And for me, you know, once somebody got out past 90 or 100 feet, it just became easy. And, and I know that sounds strange, but it's, it was, you know, you, I can trust it again. Here comes that throw from Antio. He got another one. Rick Ankeel with his second outfield assist of the night, both on the fly, both over 200 feet. Unreal. And it's, you know, it's funny, too, because the thing about the gifts is, you know, you feel, through your mechanics, right, you feel like you're fine, and then right when you're about to release the ball, it feels it, your body blacks out. It's like you have a miniature seizure, and your body does nothing of what you want it to do. It's like it, it takes over and you can't control it. And then all of a sudden you come back to and it's like, oh, my gosh, what happened? You know, did I throw off the backstop or did I bounce it or, or et cetera? So, no, I mean, after dealing with that for four years and going through all that, no, I wasn't concerned that it was going to show up in the, in the batter's box. What I felt like was now that I've been through this, which by far was the hardest thing that I've ever had to deal with, there's nothing ever again that I won't, that, I will, that I'll come up to that I know I can't get past. So that's the way I looked at it. That's the way I still look at it today. So no, I, I didn't have any of those concerns. I feel like part of what makes this so scary is not, I feel like people would understand, you know, like you said, if there were a neurological basis or, you know, losing your mechanics or something like that, but it's something that we really got to look at, not only with you writing about yourself, but with the conversation with Gary Bennett in the, in the middle of the book is like how suddenly and mysterious the origins of, of the yips are. So is that difficult to explain to like, there's no equivalent of this for someone with a normal job. Like there's cops don't get the yips. Teachers don't get the yips. So was that hard to explain? I wouldn't agree with you there because only because I've got plenty of letters from writers and you look at free throw shooters, look at NFL kickers. You look at plenty of other jobs where this happens. Cause I got ton of letters in the mail from people, other professions that were going through that. But in, the good point you did bring up there was that that's the thing. It happens so fast and there is no explanation. You always hear guys talk about, let's say a, a pitcher who blows out his elbow and they talk about how hard it is making it back and how hard that grind is, but they can go talk to 10 other people who've had elbow surgeries who say, Hey man, just hang in there. You're going to be just as good. If not better, you're going to come back stronger. Now put yourself in a position where now you have the local, we'll call it a mental injury where nobody wants to talk about it and you might not make it back. So then you've got to think about how hard that grind can be. And, and, and that's the thing is that nobody really has the answers. 
and nobody can tell you why it's happened. We can say, well, this is how we're going to try to treat it. But we still, even to the, in today's age, like nobody, we still don't know why it happens. Talking about, you know, talking to people who know how it's been there, that, that's why it sort of surprised me that it took you almost 15 years to sit down with, with uh, Steve Blass about it. So how did that conversation come about? Well, because I was writing, well, I was writing the book, um, and obviously he's been through it and reached out, and um, he said he would love to talk about it. You know, the thing, too, I feel like it's a little bit different for everybody. You know, there are definitely similarities in everybody who's gone through it, but it, it's a little bit different. So I don't know. You know, it's funny. At the time when I, when I was uh, – when I was going through it, I, there's so many people that try to give you advice and so many people have all these different cures and remedies. So they say they really have to pick and find a few people to trust and listen to because there's no way you can follow advice from a hundred different people. Mm -hmm. And are the names that most people know, whether it's Steve Bless or Steve Sex or Chuck Knobloch, I mean, are they the tip of the iceberg in that they are just the very few who made it to the major leagues and made a name for themselves and then this happened to them? Is it more likely to happen when you do get to that high level and the pressure is intense? Or have you found, because of how well-known your story is and, and your work with younger players, with the Nationals, is this happening to people all the time at every level going down to little league. I don't know about down to little league, but it's definitely happening. I mean, high school and, and beyond that. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the names that you name, there are just the, the ones that we get to see on TV and that everybody gets to see, so to speak. But yeah, no, it's happening throughout all those different levels. And, and, you know, there's, I mean, you know, I think the most recent one now that we can all identify with is John Lester, you know, that he can't throw it first, but he can still pitch fine. And there's mm -hmm. plenty of infielders and catchers who just don't want to throw it back to the catcher or don't want to throw it back to the pitcher. And, and um, you know, who we don't know and then that you probably wouldn't know and who that, that are, that are active. But I mean, I can watch, you know, I can watch TV or watch a game and tell like, Ooh, that you know, I can just tell because I've, I've been through it and understand that, he doesn't want to make that throw or, or he can't, you know, a lot of times what you'll see is guys who don't want to make that throw and it's short and they toss it back to the, to the pitcher. They'll toss it back and just turn around and walk back to the position. They don't even want to know if he caught it or if it didn't go to him, they don't want to see it. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, no, it's definitely happening, you know, a lot more than people think. Yeah. And one thing I couldn't completely tell from the book, because you do talk to people who've had the same issue, but I couldn't tell how much of a comfort that was. Like on the one hand, it sounded like it was nice just to be able to talk to people who'd been through the same struggles. But on the other hand, it sounds as if almost no one has completely figured it out or solved it. And so I would think that in that sense, talking to someone who never really got rid of it might, if anything, be more demoralizing when you are in the midst of it yourself. You know, the thing for me is just trying to let, you know, cause when it's so hard and it gets so dark and now I'm on the other side of it. And, and so the thing is, is just trying to, to help them under, you know, or let them know that I understand what they're going through. And, and this is, Hey, this is how I dealt with that at that time. And this is how I dealt with myself. And, you know, hopefully in me telling you how I handled myself in this situation or at this time or whatever can help them handle it at the same time. So the one part of it is it's, it's nice to be able to help, but at the same time, I feel so terrible because I understand where they're at and what they're going through. And it's not pleasant whatsoever. Yeah. And that's, 
there's almost like like you can't tell you know when you're talking to i think don mancini was the the nationals minor leaguer the end of the book like it's hard to tell if this is therapeutic or just you know like baseball hospice care almost like you know just trying to be somebody who who says you know i know what you're going through and do you feel like like you've got insight that can actually help or is it is this just one of those things uh, no, I, I have insight that can help, but you know the thing that's hard about it is you're looking at someone, you're looking at somebody who you, you know, we'll use Dom for instance. I mean, he was only in 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 low, you know, low A ball, and knowing that there's a chance this might be the end of his career, and he never even had a chance to make it to the big league, but he had the stuff to be very successful in the big leagues if the throwing stuff wouldn't have happened. So. That part is really hard because you're sitting across from them understanding that it was, pro- you know, it was their dream to be a major league baseball player. And now it's probably not going to happen. So that's really tough. Um, what's been therapeutic for me is, is just in me telling my story. I didn't know that this was going to be a result of writing the book and talking about it, but it has been therapeutic for me just to go back and talk about it and relive it. I mean, it, it's hard to relive it, but at the same time, what's good about it is looking at it and saying, yeah, that was me. And look, Hey, I was that guy who couldn't, you know, I lost it and couldn't throw a strike or whatever, but look here, I stand today. I played, you know, I played as an outfielder in in the big league successfully. And here I am today as a father and, and having beautiful children. And so, it, you know, there's a sense of pride and I'm, and I'm proud to, to know where I stand today after what I've been through. And that raises another question about, you know, writing the book and, you know, you talked about wanting to, fill in some of the backstory, talk about your own childhood and your relationship with your father, particularly as it relates to your relationship with your own kids. You know, you wrote the book for certain reasons, but have those reasons changed? Like, have you gotten different things in addition to that therapeutic element out of writing the book than you thought you would? You know, I couldn't really find literature on it when I went through it and nobody really wanted to talk about it. And the fact that I've made it to the other side of it and had a successful career I understood that I can that I can help people, and, and even though the book hasn't even come out yet, just from the interviews I've done, I've had plenty of people come up to me and say, "Hey, you know, thank you for speaking about this and talking about this." I went through something similar, um, and some of it's about the family stuff. It's not about the baseball stuff, but about the growing up in a dysfunctional home. And one of the reasons, you know, for writing all that is because you know I understand that other people went through that, and as a father now, it's my job to break that cycle and not put them through what I went through. And it's, you know, there's plenty of other people who've gone through similar stuff like that and are in a similar situation. And, you know, I, I've had people just come up and say, it was so refreshing to, to hear that and understand I went through the same thing and, and thank you for being open about it and talking about it. Yeah. And, and reading it kind of the incredible thing is not just that you made it back to the majors, but that you sort of survived it all because the way that you were coping with it, sort of self-medicating and drinking and trying drugs that would just help you forget about it for a few hours at a time. It's so easy to imagine that spiraling into something where not only could your career not continue, but your entire life would be in shambles. And somehow that didn't happen. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and um, you know, the biggest thing for me with help with all that was just was meeting Harvey Dorfman and understand, you know, meeting that positive male influence in my life that I hadn't had and him teaching me how to be a young man and, and, and how to how to function correctly. Regarding that relationship with Harvey, there's, you know, not only a sports psychology developed over the past 
15 years or so, but I feel like athletes have become a lot more comfortable talking about not just the yips might be a unique thing, but, you know, things like depression and anxiety and other things like that. And you were hesitant to seek, you know, to talk to Harvey before all this happened. So has your viewpoint on, you know, seeking help changed over the course of the past 15 years? And if so, how? Uh, Yeah, 1000%. You know, when I grew up, in our household, the way, you know, the way I was brought up, it was viewed as, as a weakness. You know, why would you need to go get help? But, you know, the things that Harvey was able to help me see and, and understand and realize, um, I would recommend anybody out there to go get help. There's nothing wrong with that. There was a movie that came out uh, last year called The Phenom that, uh, in addition to having a similar title to your book, also dealt with a young pitcher from Florida who suddenly forgot how to throw strikes and came from a rough background. Have you heard of this movie or seen it at all? Yeah, I did see it. I um, I was actually looking up movies one day for my kids, and uh, I seen it. And then I started looking at it, and I immediately called my lawyers. <laughs> well, I did. I mean, I'm like, all right, this is my story. You guys are just going to yeah. steal my story, and nobody's going to call me? So, yeah, I, I, I seen the previews. I called my lawyers and, and um, you know, seen what we could do about that. But, uh, yeah, I did see it. I didn't see the movie, but I just seen the previews. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're so fascinated by players who hit and pitch. We're all interested in Christian Bethencourt or Michael Lorenzen or, of course, Shohei Otani. And since you did both, not at the same time, but both separately with success, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. If the yips hadn't happened, can you imagine that you could have had success doing both? I mean, you were a good hitting pitcher, but can you imagine succeeding as a more or less full-time two-way player? Yeah, definitely. I I feel like I could have, you know, I, you know, it seems like back then, you know, teams just didn't give guys the opportunity. And and that's one thing that I hope that has happened by me, you know, obviously I didn't do it at the same time, but by being able to be successful, like I was, you know, I hope in the future. And even now I think you feel a bit more, you know, like Bumgarner and those guys, they can hit and why not? I mean, these guys are on your team, so why not utilize them to help you win? I mean, if they can get it done, why not? Yeah. It just seems so difficult to catch up with the experience that everyone has of seeing pitches and being able to distinguish pitch types when those guys are seeing thousands of pitches in the years when you were focusing on pitching. That seems like a lot of ground to make up. And yet you did it, at least to an extent. Yeah, um, no question. I, you know, I, could, I always had power. I thought the hardest thing, which was the hardest thing was going to be learning how to hit every day when the pitchers are showing you their full, their full repertoire and they're not just feeding you fastballs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember in double A the first time I'd ever seen a cutter. I was just, when I faced a righty as a left-handed hitter, I was so used to just diving out there and hitting the sinker. And then uh, this, you know, this guy threw me a cutter and I was like, Oh my God, what was that? I got to hit that too. And now there's balls <laughs> that go the other way. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the hardest things. Like, all right, now I gotta, now I gotta adjust and understand that guys can make balls go both ways. So, you know, it, the whole experience was fun. And, and like I said, I mean, I, you know, you, you see some of these pitchers hitting now who can really hit. And, and um, you know, it seems like there's a few out there that could make the switch or that could do both if the teams would allow them to. Yeah. Was it helpful at all to be able to think like a pitcher or was that not so helpful when you still have to hit 98 or something You know, that's <laughs> biting down in the dirt? You know, I get asked that question a lot. And, and my response to that is not everybody pitched like I do right? Everybody has their own way that they do things. So I can go out there and say, well, I would have done this in this situation, but that doesn't mean that he's going to do it. Or is he out there thinking, well, he's thinking that because he was a pitcher. So now I'm going to do this. Uh, It's that old 
cat and mouse game that everybody plays, but really as a hitter, I mean, you have to look fastball and stuff. There are certain situations or counts that, I, that we would say we have an educated, educated guess on, mm-hmm. you know, what, what we think the pitcher is going to do based on his strengths and my weaknesses. But that's with today's technology and scouting reports and advanced reports. Everybody has that information, but I mean, if you're going to cover, you're going to cover everything. You have to look fastball and adjust to the off speed. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've been talking to Rick Ankiel. He's the author of the new book, The Phenomenon, Pressure, the Yips, and the Pitch That Changed My Life, out on Tuesday. And Rick, thanks for coming on and sharing the story. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. All right. We'll be right back with Astros pitcher Chris Davinsky. So we could have called on our next guest at any point in this podcast. We could have had him start the podcast. We could have brought him in to close the podcast. We could have brought him in right in the middle of the podcast. So he is a pitcher for the Houston Astros who is being used in a really interesting way and has been very effective in that role. It's Chris Davinsky. Hey, Chris. Hey, what's going on, guys? Guys and girls out there. (laughs) So uh, we wanted to talk to you because it just seems like every team would love to have someone like you who can come in in almost any role, make a start, pitch at any point in the game and and go multiple innings out of the bullpen. And yet there aren't a lot of pitchers like you who, who do this. It seems like so many guys are either locked into a starting role or a one inning relief role. So why aren't there more Chris Davinsky's out there? Uh, because I, I mean, I feel like there's only one, one of me, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, as I, as I grow into this game and, you know, the more I get older, I learn about myself and, you know, and I, I learn how unique I am and how valuable I can be. And it's just who I am, you know, as a person and just like my background. And so it's, uh, you know, it's an honor to be here. And that's what I got on that. What is it that allows you to be comfortable with this role? Because it seems like a lot of relievers or pitchers like the predictability of always doing the same thing, coming in at the same time, knowing when they're going to pitch and for how long they're going to pitch. So why yeah. is it that, that you're able to be comfortable with the uncertainty? Uh, you know, because, you know, I mean, I was kind of developed for this. As I look back and how I traveled my journey and, and got to this point, you know, I did a lot of different roles in, in the minor leagues. We had uh, this thing called piggybacking, which was, uh, you know, a starter would go five innings and a reliever, which would be a starter, would go four innings. And it would be vice versa the next time around where uh, whoever relieved would start, whoever started would relieve. So I did, a, you know, I did some of that. And when I first got drafted, I was a reliever and, and then I also started. So, I mean, I've, I've just done a lot of things and uh, prepared myself for, you know, any situation that, that comes my way that I'll be able to handle it and, you know, not have like a set time when I pitch or something. You know, you're talking about uncertainty, you know. I mean, nothing, nothing there's no guarantees in this life. And same thing, same thing on the baseball field, man. You know, you never know what can happen. Uh, you got to play the game. You got to get 27 outs and try to be the last man standing every, every uh, game to win it. So setting aside that, you know, you're happy with your role and you don't want to make any waves, is this what you want to do or would you rather be starting or closing? I mean, I like doing this, you know, like, but, you know, I can start and I can close, you know, I'm not for sure set on on what I want to do, but I mean, I know as, you know, as as I grow and and continue to grow as a baseball player in my career, I'll find my way to what's best and we'll be able to uh, move forward with that. So you came up, you know, you played your last year of college ball at uh, at Cal State Fullerton. And, you know, this is I've heard stories from a lot of guys who have come through Fullerton about the importance of throwing strikes. 
And, you know, was that part of your development that, you know, you've had a pretty low walk rate within in the major leagues, but does that help you get deeper into a relief appearance too? I think so. I mean, you gotta, I've always take pride of, you know, being ahead of hitters and, you know, being ahead in the count. And then, you know, from there you can do what you want. You know, that was one thing that when I was at Fullerton, we preached the managers I had there, the coaching staff, the pitching staff, you know, I can mention some names, Dave Serrano, you know, Kirk Sarlos, those guys, you know, they preached that to me. They preached get ahead, strike one, you know, get ahead, get ahead. And then, you know, you can expand the zone, this and that. But, you know, it goes back to those days where it was really, you know, instilled in me to, you know, get ahead of hitters. And, you know, I'd rather, you know, give up a home run than have a four-pitch walk, you know, in my mind. Because, you know, you're going to beat me with your with your best stuff. And you really took a lot of people by surprise last season, at least people who aren't with the Astros. I mean, Baseball America, for instance, said last spring that you had the best changeup in Houston system, but they didn't even list you among the top 30 prospects in the system. And then, you know, a few months later, you come up and you're one of the most effective pitchers in baseball on an inning per inning basis, certainly. So is it that you changed? Did you develop in a way that made you come from under the radar or is there something about the way that you pitch or the way you look on the mound that you think made you underrated? I mean, I, I really don't know. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, I know for myself that I went lower than, you know, I felt like I should have been. But mm-hmm. I don't forget that, though. You know, if that motivates me and drives me, then, you know, that's what I'm going to use to fuel my fire and, you know, help my teammates uh, participate in, in winning a World Series in Houston. Because that's what we want. And, you know, that's our goal. And, you know, we're working hard for that. I want to ask about the changeup specifically, because just watching your first appearance of the year uh, against the Mariners, you made a lot of guys look silly. So when did you discover you had the feel for that? And, you know, what's the grip? How do you get it to, to break like that? I discovered a feel for it back uh, probably, when was that, 2012? I threw a no-hitter and threw like 105 pitches and I believe like 60-some on changeups. I, I had a lot of swing and misses on it. And, you know, I, I, got, I took a lot of confidence away from that outing it was um, something I could work on. You know, it's a circle change of grip. You know, it's that simple. <laughs> and just, you know, I've uh, been able to uh, teach myself some certain key pointers on it to get depth and uh, to have it work for me. And I imagine that helps. You know, like you think of somebody, Andrew Miller's probably the other um, big multi-inning reliever going right now. And he's got that wipeout slider. And like not everybody has a breaking pitch that'll work to both lefties and righties. So I imagine that the changeup allows you to get both handed hitters out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a big pitch, you know, that along with having a, you know, good fastball, you know, I can't forget that I have a good fastball too. And, you know, even uh, my slider, you know, I feel like is good and, you know, I believe in all my pitches and willing to, to go out there and give it all I got every night, man. And you sort of adjusted your pitch mix during last season. I think you, you throw the changeup a lot more than almost anyone else, really. But it seemed like you switched from the curve to the slider and really trusted that pitch more as the season went on. So can you tell us about the development of your breaking balls? Yeah, I mean, the develop, I mean, I feel my curveball is good, but, you know, it really didn't, you know, it really didn't play against right-handed hitters the way I experienced. So mm-hmm. going over with, uh, you know, my pitching coach here, Brent Strom, it was uh, played a, a big part in uh, my career coming into the some major leagues as far as uh, we'd go over some things, you know, and we started uh, talking about this slider and, you know, it was just something I continue to work on and 
uh, felt comfortable as I progressed throughout the year to be able to throw it, you know, in situations that counts. And uh, it's uh, that that pitch is still, you know, nowhere compared to where the, the changeup can be at. But in time with hard work and, you know, I think preparation and all that, that, you know, that could be, you know, a very good pitch to uh, in the near future. So last year you were going from anywhere from an inning to two innings to four or five innings. And this year it's been one appearance of four innings, then three days off, and then another appearance of four innings. I think now you're on four days since that. So is that going to be the new normal or are you adjusting to, or are you just, you know, waiting for that next situation? How do you and Brent Strom and AJ Hinch plan your usage out? Oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) It's funny, AJ told me that he didn't really plan on using me like that, but, you know, there was uh, the situation where, you know, called upon me to go uh, that many of innings. So, you know, now, like you said, you know, from now we just go and, uh, you know, take it day by day and see what happens when I go out there on the field. You know, if it's a one-inning deal, two-inning deal, whatever it takes, you know, I'll be able to, you know, go out there and uh, give my best effort every time. And do you think your delivery adds an element of deception? Is that something you you hear from catchers or coaches or opposing hitters? Because it seems like you kind of have a an over the top delivery, and it's kind of a, a quiet delivery. But then I think I've heard, you know, from a lefty's point of view, possibly yeah, because you know I fall off a little bit. But you know, I've always thought that was unique, and you know, that was just what was natural for me, and you know, it works for me to. Uh, uh, be able to compete, you know, every time. So, you know, hopefully it's deceiving. I've never hit against myself, you know, but uh, <laughs> hopefully from, you know, the point of view, point of view from a hitter it is. So. so zooming out, not about you, but, you know, talk about the team. There's been a lot of speculation um, sort of around the baseball world about what the clubhouse dynamic is like, just because the Astros, despite being successful, are still a really young team. Like even guys like Altuve are only you know, 26, 27. Who's taken on that leadership role in your first couple of years? And how is adding guys like Brian McCann and, and Carlos Beltran over the, the offseason changed that? I mean, it's, you know, it's a little bit more structured. You know, you got the you know you got the big dogs to look up to. You know, Beltran and McCann and Reddick have have done a great job so far, and kind of you know put us uh, you know all together in the in the same kind of you know direction, pulling pulling that rope the same way. And it's good to be around that man. And, you know, especially you know for me, you know coming up and being young and you know watching these guys and know the success they have. It's just it's a, it's an honor you know to even you know be around them and talk to them and learn from them and you know, the positive message and the inspiration they send us every day is just uh, it's very motivating and makes it fun to be together as a, as a team. So we got, we got some, some, some special stuff going on, man, here. So all good. And can you tell us about your nickname? I know that you've sort of embraced it more than a lot of players do. It's kind of become a, a core part of your identity, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, my nickname ever since I was younger was Devo. Uh-huh. It's, it's always it's always stuck with me. That's, you know, all my friends back home, people I went to school with, they they all know me by Devo. But you know, a little bit in the baseball world, I've kind of developed the uh, the dragon, which was uh, pretty cool. I got that a couple of years ago. So that's that's been hanging on a little bit. So I mean, I like that. I carry a little dragon with me everywhere I go. Not everywhere I go, but you know, on the road when I travel with my with my baseball gear and stuff. So. Mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah. just some little fun, fun tidbits. <laughs> that's a that's a way better nickname than I feel like a lot of rookies get stuck with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no. So it was, yeah, that was an honor to have that one, you know, it was a cool one, fire breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is it easy for you to maintain that kind of fire breathing attitude when you're coming in, in the third inning or the fourth inning or something? I mean, do you feel a different sort of adrenaline when you come in at certain times or is it not matter? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's different, you know, it depends on, on the game and, uh, uh, you know how big the situation is and uh things like that all come into play but you know i try to stay even keel and take the same same mentality out there with me uh you know every day I, i'm given the opportunity to pitch all right well it's been fun to watch you come in mm-hmm. I, you never know when you're going to see chris davinsky it could yeah. be almost any inning and every inning but it's uh working out well for you and the astros so far so good luck and we'll see if you set an example that some other teams follow see if they can develop other davinsky's definitely all right guys i appreciate it and you guys you guys take care Okay, so that is it for this episode. And I want to encourage, you know, in light of Rick Ankiel and, and Chipper Jones, if you're a ball player and you're listening, please write a memoir because <laughs> if you're, you know, you go on a, a tour flogging your book, it makes it really easy for us to book the podcast. We will have you on. That is true. Yeah, you're they a baseball come to player us. And you've written a book. Yeah. <laughs> Not exactly a shortage of baseball player memoirs out there, but always interesting. All right, so we will be back on Thursday with at least one interesting guest. We will talk to you all then. 